0: Welcome to Reliving My Youth, the podcast where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. Today I look back at V. It was a smash hit back in 1983. It spawned a second miniseries, a TV show, comic books, some toys, and trading cards. The V was a story of aliens coming to Earth in search of minerals for their dying planet. Little do we know they were really lizards disguised as humans or human form, and wanted our water and people for food. Now, V was super successful. It had a great ensemble cast featuring Mark Singer, who was the Beastmaster, and basically was Robert England's breakout role, who we all know was Freddy Krueger. It featured Richard Hurd, who was the Supreme Leader John. You might know him as Mr. Wilhelm from Seinfeld. And Michael Ironside was in V, The Final Battle, who we all know is kick-ass and everything he does. So I had a chance to speak with the creator of V, Kenneth Johnson. Now, Kenneth created the miniseries V, as well as the Bionic Woman TV show, the TV show of the Incredible Hulk, and Alienation. So he is pretty, pretty well involved in pop culture. And helping me relive my youth is the creator of V, the miniseries, Kenneth Johnson. Kenny, how are you today?
1: Fine,
0: Thanks for your interest. Oh, anytime. Uh, I was eight years old when V came out, the miniseries, and like every other little kid, the spaceships, the guns, the uniforms, everything appealed to me. But the story really appealed to me. Can you just tell me a little bit about the inspiration for V? Um,
1: well, yeah, I... Uh Quickly, I I had read a novel by uh, Sinclair Lewis uh, that he wrote in the 1930s, 1935, called It Can't Happen Here. It's just currently enjoying something of a revival, given our election situation recently here in the United States. Yeah, right. Uh, and it was it was about a rise of nationalism, populism, fascism, uh, in as was going on in Germany and Italy at the time, and during just before World War II, uh, and something like that happening in the United States with the idea of well it can't happen here, ha ha ha. And of course we discover that it does, and uh, pretty soon we're in a living in a different country. And I thought how interesting it would be for to see how ordinary. Uh, people uh, would react to a sudden sea change in their lives. We hadn't had anything any, any anything remotely close to that since uh, uh, Pearl Harbor in, in 1941. And uh, just, you know, how it would be if all of a sudden uh, it was a different world. And uh, originally the story was written uh, as a sort of a grassroots fascist uprising that uh, suddenly flip-flopped uh, people in America. And uh, uh, and suddenly, the uh, the government was a different kind of government, and suddenly it was uh, a very scary place, and uh, uh, with a lot of dark 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 sides. And uh, um, and I intended it to be a movie. That's the the way I was going. But uh, my friend Brandon Tartikoff, uh, who was then running NBC, asked me if he could read it, and. Uh, he loved it and said, we've got to do a big mini-series about this. And he said, but I'm not sure the uh, American public will understand fascism. And I said, well, it's not a complicated concept, Brandon. You know, you just shave your head, put on a black shirt, and beat somebody up. Uh, But um, he he said, well, couldn't it be uh, an outside force like the Soviets or the Chinese? And I didn't believe they could sustain a protracted occupation. And somebody in the meeting suggested aliens, and I just went, ah! I didn't want to do science fiction. I i was trained in uh in the classic uh, theater and uh uh, and with a very eclectic uh, background, and but you know, you create the Bionic Woman, and then you do the Incredible Hulk, and pretty soon people say, "Oh, well, that's what he does. He's the sci-fi guy." You know, so I, I really wasn't uh, interested in going that way. But Brandon just urged me. He said, "Okay, just just think about it overnight." And and I thought about it, and I realized that I could do the story that I wanted to do, and tell the the story with the themes that I wanted to explore, <clears throat> but. Um, but with uh, and I could do it equally well uh, if it was an alien invasion, and if I did that, I, then I would have all the eye candy and the things that would attract a, an eight-year-old boy's attention, uh, as well as uh, as well as the adults in the audience. And uh, um, so uh, I said, yeah, we can we can make that work because V was never about big spaceships and a reptilian race and all of that. I mean, that was just those were just incidentals. What V was really about was power and about how you react when a hyper power rolls in and says, uh, hi, we're here to be your friends and help you out, like the Nazis rolled into the Low Countries before World War Two and said, hi, we're the Nazis, the new guys in town, we are, we're here to be your friends and to protect you from the English, you know, and, uh, and then slowly they revealed, the Nazis, a different, very different face, and I realized I could tell uh, an allegory of that same sort of story and have my people actually reveal a different face under underneath. uh, uh, But it was about how people responded to power, how some would suck up to it like the Vichy French did in World War II and collaborate with the enemy, how others would say, well, if I just keep my head down and they don't bother them and they don't bother me, and I'm not a scientist in the case of V or a Jew in the case of uh, uh, people during World War II, then, you know, maybe I wouldn't be persecuted. But, uh, But then there were the third group of people who said, no, 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 this power is being abused and we have to fight back. And uh, uh, and they become the heroes of the resistance it 's really i mean when you look at it, step back and look at it it 's really Spartacus and the revolt of the slaves i mean it 's a classic story of uh, uh, of fighting against an oppressive regime, whether it 's uh, uh, in the past or through Africa you know twenty years ago through apartheid or the uh, uh, that sort of thing and it's, um, uh, and I think that 's what makes V a a timeless story and and recently I discovered that I own the motion picture rights, and we've been uh, endeavoring to get a motion picture version of my original uh, four-hour miniseries put together, and uh, and then follow it up with uh, two sequels that are based on my novel, V, the Second Generation, which picks the story up like 20 years after the arrival, and we see what's become of the world. Um, and uh, so we're uh, we're... We' working hard to get the the funding in place. all the studios <laughs> wanted to buy the rights uh from me and uh you know when they when they first heard i uh, had had uh that I was the owner of the rights, which just really came to light a couple of years ago, suddenly I had a lot of new best friends, Noel. You know, all <laughs> of the, I can imagine. <laughs> that's,
0: what happens, that's what happens in Hollywood. All the major studios,
1: literally all of the major studios uh, came after me and we had meetings at the highest levels and they all said, yeah, yeah, we want to give you this uh, an obscene amount of money to buy the rights and, uh, and you can produce, absolutely. We might let you write. But uh, for a director, you know, we're thinking maybe somebody like Michael Bay or something. And I'm going, mm, no, I no. don't think so. <laughs> and the funny thing is, of course, when you say no in Hollywood, they generally say, okay, okay, we understand. How much money do you really want? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, no, guys, it's not about money. It's about protecting my, uh, my original brainchild. And uh, so we're trying to set it up as an independent picture, which is a, a steep climb because it's a $60 million movie for the first of the trilogy. And, uh, but we've got, uh, we've been very, very close several times, and we're close again now. I've got meetings later today and uh, later this week, too, uh, with
0: people have ex- who have expressed interest. And uh, so we're working on it. Well, fingers crossed, I know all the V fans would love to see that. But the, the, yes,
1: they would. My God, you can't believe it. It's like, you know, the last time my assistant Googled V or V visitors, she turned up something like 70 pages of links you know, to people and groups around the world that are, um, uh, it's just never gone away. It's
0: delightful. Yeah, it's great. And you know, the, the big, uh, movie studios have already made your movie. It's called Independence Day. So I'm really glad. Well, it's, funny, it's a funny story about that. We were at a, at a, uh, Susie, my wife and I
1: were, I was in an awards ceremony somewhere back in the nineties. Uh, and, um, was for, I forget what it was when it was the Saturn or the Emmys or something. And anyway, in the, um, as we were leaving in the parking lot, there were these two guys that came up to say, Hey, wait, wait, Kenny, Kenny, can we talk to you a second? We've, we've always wanted to meet you, man. So we've been such fans of yours for years. And uh, Hi, I'm Dean Devlin, and this is Roland Emmerich, <laughs> uh, the producer and director of Independence Day. You know, and they said, and this is a quote, Susie heard them say it. They said, you know, we've been ripping you off for years. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I sort of was aware of that. Where's my cut of the 400 million, guys, you know? Um, but um, uh, it's interesting, though, but Independence Day was very, very different from V because mine was about real people. It wasn't about presidents that can suddenly fly, fly fighter jets, and uh, there were no generals or presidents or anything like that in V because I wanted to see how ordinary people like you and me, Noel, and uh, and our friends and relatives would react uh, to a circumstance like that and how some of them would collaborate and some would keep their heads down and some would fight back. Yeah. And, uh, That's uh, that's what we want to do, and the movie would be not a reimagining. I hate that Uh, when people try to reimagine things. That's part of the reason I said no to the studios when they were asking about and really offering me so much money. Um, I had watched what had happened when they had people had tried to reimagine my creations, like the Bionic Woman, or the way that I created the the Incredible Hulk for television, and they tried. You know, they figured, oh well, we can just take that title and make it a hit, and. uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way <laughs> you know it's uh it's not easy to capture lightning in a bottle i have been very lucky to have have done that several times in my career and have several of my ideas and projects become sort of i take on a kind of iconic status uh but it's hard when you try to try to go back and redo it and other people and they don't quite get what it's all about underneath to begin with you know so uh uh it's uh that's why i've held on to uh uh Trying to do V as uh, as a project that I can make certain I can control the creative quality and, uh, 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 and and make it and give the audience what I know they want to see as opposed to oh we want to see more of V but ooh not that V you know so. Uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll do the best we can, but hey, listen, if you can, uh, or any of your listeners can help us put together the $60 million, or even half of it, uh, it's a pretty good deal, they get to be executive producer, plus they get 2.5% of whatever monies they bring in, we have several finders that are working on that deal for us, and uh, 2.5% of $60 million is a piece of change.
0: Yeah, I might have some stash away in my, my you know, couch cushions, as long as I get to play a visitor, I'll, I'll, I'll oh. definitely contribute some. <laughs>
1: that would be that would be the easiest thing to give you <laughs> yeah
0: definitely definitely now you you left uh, the sequel was that pretty much because a result of like the studios getting involved a little too much it
1: was a result of the studios breaching my contract <laughs> oh wow <laughs> and uh, uh, it's uh, uh because I had it in my control it's, it's too long a story for us to go into here now, but uh, the bottom line was that uh, uh, Warners had something else that they wanted me to get on to, and they didn't want me to take the time to direct the uh, uh, the miniseries uh, or any part of it because of uh, the, their eagerness to have me do this other thing that was part of the deal with NBC for doing the uh, Uh, the miniseries. NBC had... Warners did not want to do a a sequel because they wanted to be in the series business. Movie miniseries don't make nearly as much money for the studios as ongoing series do. Uh, And so the only way that Warners would agree to doing the sequels of uh, the sequel that became known as The Final Battle um, was because NBC agreed to give Warners and me a separate... Uh, a commitment for a, a 12-hour on-the-air series that hadn't even been thought of or created at that point. It was something that I was going to create, uh, and in return for that, they would uh, do the, the six-hour the sequel. Uh, and Warner's was just so equal so e- eager to have me uh, uh, start working on the, uh, the, the the series deal for them. Uh, that they didn't want me to direct the uh, the sequels, and I said, "Well, guys, you've just breached my contract." And they said, "Yeah, we don't care. We don't care about that. Sue us if you want to, but that's the way it is." <laughs> you know? mm. So I just said, "How about I just walk away?" and um, uh, and that's what uh, that's what had to happen.
0: Wow. So did you ever watch the uh, final well, battle in the? No,
1: no all of my uh, all of my friends uh, who worked on it, a few of the crew and, and uh, worked on it. A lot of them wouldn't work on it. Uh, Many of the actors didn't want to work on it, but had to because they were under contract and they couldn't afford to be sued either. Um, And uh, uh, everyone who worked on it told me that I should never watch it because they had totally dismantled our script, which was really quite good and uh, better, I think, in some ways than my original four hours was. Um, but um, uh, they said no. It'll, it's too painful, Kenny. You don't want to. You don't want to see what they did to it. And, and to this day, uh, I was channel surfing one day. I don't know, four or five years ago, and I happened to cro- come across a scene. Uh, it was a scene with Diana and and uh, and the priest or something from right. the sequels. You know, and i I watched thirty seconds of it and had to turn it off, Noel, because <laughs> I watched them make every mistake they could make in thirty seconds. <laughs> oh my god, uh, everybody all of my friends were right. this is not something I should ever watch, so I never have
0: oh good, and then then you shouldn't watch the uh the TV series as well <laughs> well
1: no I, I looked at a little bit of the, well, i I knew what it was going to be about and how they were doing it, and then it really had nothing to do with my characters or my storylines, which I was delighted to have to hear about. Uh, but when the, the young gentleman who had the idea first sat and talk, talked to me about it, because he was really very nice and and respectful uh, uh, and uh, and eager to let me know he wasn't going to try to redo anything that I had already done, and he explained to me what what they were going to do with it, and uh, <laughs> it, it, I said, "Oh, good luck. That's great. Oh, okay. Good luck to you." And uh, um, they tried. They tried one year to sell it. They couldn't get it sold because nobody wanted it uh, the way that it was pitched. And so they had a script written at Warner Brothers. And they took the script out and said, okay, look, now once you can see the script, you can see how it's going to work. And all the networks passed. Again on it. and uh, um, it was um, uh, it was a bit a bit of bit of a disappointment and a bugger and uh, and finally uh, we were just about to make a a deal uh, for v the movie with with a studio actually that was going to let me have the control that I was eager to have on the picture um, and uh, uh, and Warner's TV heard about it and And they called back all the networks and said, look, we'll give you the the whole development of V, the TV series, for free if you'll just announce a development deal, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, it's like, and all the networks said no, (laughs) <laughs> don't be ridiculous! They said we're not going to do that. If we don't like the project, we don't like the project. Why would we announce a development deal? But ABC said that they were a little hurting apparently at the time. They said, "Oh yeah, well, all right, we'll announce a development deal." Because a development deal doesn't really mean anything for a, for a pilot in in Hollywood. Uh, no, they they make development deals for about a hundred or more pilots every season, and only maybe eight or ten of them get actually physically produced and made you know so it's a development deal is like you know like saying I'll buy you a cup of coffee it uh, doesn't doesn't mean anything until it gets goes forward but uh, but ABC was desperate enough and V was a big enough name that they just felt that they could do something with it and they did but and the audience tuned in that first night I mean the bottom line is uh, the same thing happened exactly with the bionic woman uh, because uh, uh, the bionic woman (laughs) The head of Warner's was telling me, uh, the, the, you know, the Bionic Woman, the new series is tracking, before it went on the air. I said, it's tracking, the high, it's going to be the highest rated new series ever. And I said, have you seen the pilot? And he said, no, it doesn't matter, though, because hmm. it, it's tracking, it's going to be the biggest hit in the history of Western civilization. It's going to be huge, you know. Hmm. And that's why we want to do V, because it's going to be huge, the same thing. And uh, I said, have you seen the pilot? And he said, no. I said, I have seen the pilot for the new Bionic Woman. And it doesn't work, and it won't work as a series. I said, because it has no humanity, it has no humor, it has no heart at all, and it also doesn't have a leading lady uh, anywhere near the caliber of actress that Lindsay Wagner was. It's going to sink and crash and burn. He said, no, no, huge hit. So, Bionic Woman goes on the air, gets pretty big numbers, I think about 14 or 15 million people tuned in for the first night, which is very respectable because everybody that remembered it fondly or had heard about it fondly uh, wanted to see it, and then they tuned it in and went, oh, <laughs> this isn't what we had in mind, this is not the bionic woman we remember, and, uh, and it, it was canceled within eight or nine weeks and crashed and burned, and David Icke, who was the executive producer, I think he directed and wrote the, the, first, the first one, uh, and who has a lot of talent, I don't know him personally, but I have a great respect for him, because after it, it crashed so miserably... Uh, he he took it on the chin and stood up and said, you know what, it's our fault. We never knew what that show was about. It didn't have any humanity. It didn't have any humor. It didn't have any heart. I mean, literally, those (laughs) words, you know. And he was right, because the audience tuned in big that first night, but the second week, a third of the audience went away. The third week, another third of the audience went away, and then it was gone. And V followed exactly the same pattern. Uh, big, big tune-in that first night. Everybody wanted to see more of V. I can't tell you how many letters and emails I got from people around the
0: world who said, "We so want to see more of V." Mm, right. Not that, but not that V. You know. So it was
1: a uh, uh, it was a disappointment for uh, for a lot of people and. Uh, uh and it's but it went away and but the beauty of it is they didn't mess with my characters or my story so um uh, you know we're very comfortable in going out with v the movie uh, using my original characters my original storylines and uh and of course i brought it up into the 21st century uh it uh, there was a lot of things in addition to cgi that we didn't have back in 1983 right. like cell phones and internets and things like that you know uh, but the essence of the story is it works because it's because it's a timeless tale. So we're uh, we're hopeful that it will be able to get the movies up and into the theaters.
0: Right, and the the, the cast was so diverse of uh, the original miniseries. I mean, it well, was. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, I wanted I, I always wanted a diverse cast, and uh, and most of the roles were written in that way with their ethnicis, ethnicity specified in the script because. Uh, trying to do whatever I can always f- in the interest of diversity, in the interest of, tol- in, uh, of tolerance, uh, in, the, in the interest of promoting um, humanity working together, I mean, that's what I wanted to see was people f- uh, from across the spectrum of all walks of life um, who... Band together out of a common goal to uh, preserve our freedoms and, and our life here in in America. Uh, that's what I what I wanted to uh, what I wanted to do and uh, uh, and I was I was really blessed. I mean, we had no time to do the to, to prep and the show. I mean, for a four-hour miniseries with that scope, uh, with all the alien stuff that we had to build and the locations and a cast of 65 to to uh, actors that I had to cast. Um, normally you'd have about four or five months of, of prep time to uh, to get it ready before you started filming, but but NBC and Warner's were in such a hurry to get it on the air. It was from the day Brandon read the script. He read it over. A, I gave it to him on a Friday. He read it on a weekend. He called me Sunday at home and then said, "Go." From the day Brandon said "go" until the day I said "action," my prep time that should have been like four months or more was two and a half weeks. Wow. And, you know, it's like people in the industry hear that and they go, that's impossible. And I <laughs> said, yeah, but we did it, didn't we? You know, so it was uh, it was an extraordinary challenge. But great, uh, you know, a piece of work, obviously, of all the work that I've done that uh, that I'm probably absolutely the most proud of.
0: Now, you also directed a f- couple of features, and you turn the TV on any time now. You see Shaquille O'Neal doing commercials for The General, for Icy Hot... How was uh, the experience working with him on Steel? Uh, well, it was funny. Uh, Shaq is a, was a wonderful kid. He was only 24 years old at the time. He had just signed at the Lakers for $250 million. <laughs> right. You know, he had, he had a contract that was way bigger than the budget of that picture. <laughs> and, um, uh,
1: and Quincy Jones called me and, and told me that he would like me to, me to write and direct uh, this project called Steel. And he told me what it was about. I loved the idea that the hero was a black guy because there really hadn't been one yet in the movies and a major feature. And I said, that's great, but... uh, I said, 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 who's going to play the lead? And he said, well, we got Shaquille O'Neal attached. I said, that's nice, but who's going to (laughs) star? And I said, well, Shaq is... I said, Shaq is not a star, guys. He's a nice guy, a very nice guy. uh, But he's not a movie star. He's already done a couple of movies that were not very well received you know and they said no no it's gonna, it's going to be great the concept of it and you doing it it's gonna... I said no guys we need a start why did warner brothers hire arnold schwarzenegger at the peak of his career to play mr freeze in mm-hmm. the batman movie you know it's because george clooney wouldn't open the batman movie they you know it's very the phrase they use is will the movie open which means on the first weekend will it Draw in a big audience because if it doesn't draw in a big audience the first weekend, forget about it. Right. And uh, uh, and so it's it's really really critical that uh, you know that you have people in the cast uh, that that the audience wants to see. <laughs> and hmm. uh, uh, and I kept beating this drum the whole time we were in prep and uh, uh, talking to uh, Billy Gerber and and. Uh, uh, Bonifantura, Lorenzo de, Renzo de Bonifantura, um about, I said, guys, you've got to have it, and they said, no, no, no that's going to be fine, and, 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 and so, we, so we made the movie, and, uh, um, and it came out really, really well, we previewed it in 60 theaters around the country, uh, the audiences loved it, and I'm thinking, that's nice, but nobody's paying to see it, <laughs> that, this is, you know, these are free previews, you know? And uh, and they did a little. They thought they did a fair amount of hoopla for the press. But the weekend we did had our premiere at Grauman's Chinese, which was the weekend before the movie actually opened. Um, Warner's released a movie called Conspiracy Theory. Right. Okay. And it starred Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts at the peak of their careers. Okay. And the movie didn't open. And I, th- I thought, oh my God, we don't have a chance with Steel because they had the two biggest stars in, in the world at that time, and they couldn't open the movie. And I got a basketball player, right? You know, it's, and uh, and you know, and it was true. I mean, the, the, the first weekend we opened, you could have shot off a cannon in any of the theaters in America, and, and not, uh, you know, and not not hit a soul. It was uh, not a happening thing. Uh, but it was disappointing. It was so The movie was disappointing too, uh, in terms of the uh, reception. And, and also, incidentally, uh, the whole marketing department at uh, Warner Brothers got fired because hmm. of that. And, um, uh, and also Billy Gerber, one of the presidents of, in- of Warner Brothers, got fired because of it. And I, uh, I took him to breakfast a couple months after that, Billy Gerber, and I said, Bill, what were you thinking? And he said, well, you know, Kenny, until just before you started, the week before you started shooting, we were thinking, maybe maybe Kenny's right. Maybe we ought to pull out Shaq and put in, like, Wesley Snipes or Denzel or somebody like that, you know. And I said, right? And why didn't you? <laughs> and he said, well, because the marketing department at Warner's was convinced that they could sell more toys with Shaq nah. than with uh, Wesley or Denzel. And I said, Billy, not if the movie doesn't open, hmm. <laughs> you know haven't you done this before? It was like, Maddening, you know. So welcome to Hollywood, Noel. It's uh, the way it goes. But working with Shaq was terrific. He was—he couldn't have been more generous. He knew everybody's. He not only knew all his lines, he knew everybody else's lines in the script. Somebody went up, he could tell them what their line was. He was always there. He was always on time. And whenever we break for lunch, and we shot most of it in downtown LA, whenever we break for lunch, he'd go to the nearest school, and uh, and show up with a bunch of toys and hang out and go and shoot basketball, shoot hoops with him on the basketball court, or he'd shoot in the sandal. That were around in in uh, in the lower class sections of L.A. That uh, where we were filmed a lot of the movie, uh, and um, you know couldn't have been more generous and and more humble. And and then I met his mom and I saw why he was who he was because she also is like about six two, right? And she's she's a very tall, very imposing presence and. Uh, uh, I mean, it was, yes, ma'am, no ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, you know, and uh, uh, and he was raised by a couple of people that raised him right, and uh, so I got nothing but good things to say about Shaquille. Yeah.
0: May, uh, maybe Shaq wants to uh, finance the V movie. <laughs> I actually
1: talked to him about it at one point, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we, we, were just, uh, we ran into each other, and he said, hey, man, you know what? I, I told him about it, and, and uh, he, he went back to his financial advisors, and they wanted to stay in stocks and bonds or something. So uh, it didn't happen, but it was—it uh, it actually did come up.
0: Right, That's right. I heard a great story that you actually turned down the job offer from Richard Nixon.
1: Yeah. Um, well, interestingly, uh, uh, an old friend of mine just died last week, uh, and that would be Roger Ailes. Um, he uh, when I was I was I had gotten out of graduated Carnegie, uh, Carnegie it's now Carnegie Mellon University then it was Carnegie Tech um, and and I went to the drama department there which was a, uh, a theater school there was no film or TV it was all theater uh, and I studied directing which is what I am and and enjoy doing the most uh, and I I managed to uh, there's no film equipment or anything like that either and I had managed to. Um, uh, make a little film while I was there, sort of a noirish uh, psychological thriller kind of thing, um, and um, uh, and it got me hired at uh, WPIX in New York City uh, when I was 22 years old uh, to uh, to be a producer and, and director at, and, in New York. And it was a you know it was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make movies, but I couldn't get any film work in New York. Uh, when I went to New York, they said, Why'd you come here? You came to the wrong coast. Yeah. <laughs> No, because I knew that I wanted to be in film at that point. But uh, but I started at at B I X and was uh, was there for a year or so and did a couple of very successful shows. Uh, But I was approached by uh, Westinghouse, for whom I had worked, Westinghouse Broadcasting. Uh, I worked as an intern when I was in, in college because I was just trying to get as much experience in uh, every venue as I could, so I figured I'd better learn something about TV. And they, they, they asked me if I would uh, like to leave the uh, producing and directing in New York and go to join uh, the Mike Douglas Show, which was um, the, the first daytime 90-minute talk variety music program ever. Uh, Westinghouse had created it and, uh, and built it around Mike, who would have a different co-host each week. And, uh, and it was, it was already very, very successful. Uh, but they were just changing leadership and this young guy named Roger Ailes was taking over the show as executive producer. Uh, Roger's only a couple of years older than I was. And, um uh, and he wanted to meet with me, and I, I met with him, and I said, "Roger, I, I, I thanks a lot. I'm am flattered that you like my work and you'd like me to come with you, but I and you wanted to pay me more money than I was making in New York, but I, I really want to go to California and make movies." And Roger can, was his whole pitch was, uh, "Look, I'll let you do lots and lots and lots of film work uh, at the Douglas Show. You can be the guy that does all the film stuff for us." And he says, "You can do anything you want as long as we get our 90 minutes live six times a week done." <laughs> you know and. Uh, Uh, But Roger was uh, one of the smartest guys I'd ever met, a really brilliant guy, very, very funny. And uh, and charming and uh, and he absolutely seduced me into going down there and uh, you know and and I learned a lot from him while the year that we year and so that we worked together, but the and it's funny in light of what happened later on with the whole Fox scandals and everything, uh, I have to say from from my perspective, the only person I ever saw Roger actually hit on was Richard Nixon, in <laughs> the. <laughs> 68 campaign, Nixon came to do the uh, to do this to be a guest on the show because anybody that was running for office, any star that was doing, it had a movie out, any TV show, you know, we had all the authors, all the stars, all the musicians, all the, everybody in the world came through that show and. Uh, um, And Nixon and along, I mean, that's where I met Bobby Kennedy, I met Humphrey when he was vice president, got to know him really pretty personally well. Uh, And Nixon came in to do the show, and uh, when we finished the show, Roger grabbed him and pulled him into his office and said, Mr. Nixon, you should hire me, because I can get you elected. And Nixon said, how can you do that, Roger? (laughs) And uh, Roger said, because you need a media advisor. And he said, what's a media advisor, Roger? And he said, I am. And Roger made up the term. had never been a term like that before. And so Nixon hired Roger to uh, uh, run his campaign, and Roger left the Douglas show, told Westinghouse that I should take it over. I was 24 years old, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and here I was running the show that, during while I was there, got to be the highest, well, it was, we had, uh, Oprah was big, Johnny Carson was big. The uh, Oprah was, not, of course, not even on the air then. But the the largest audience that Oprah and the Tonight Show ever had combined, the Douglas Show audience was almost eight times bigger. You wow. know, it was it was a it was a huge you know ten thousand pound gorilla. Uh, and by the time I left, we were in 230 markets. We had more stations than NBC or CBS had. Mm. You know, it was a, it was amazing. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. I really wanted to come out in California. But but about two months into the uh, producing executive producing uh, the Douglas Show, I got a call one night. cunning it's Roger and Dick." <laughs> okay. Dick, how can I help you? He so we want you to leave the Douglas show, and we want you to we want you to come and direct my big Madison Square Garden rally. It's going to be a humongous thing, and it's going to give you all the cameras and all the technicians, whatever you want, you know, and then I want you to direct all the rest of my television stuff through the campaign, and then I want you to go into the White House with me. And I said, I'll call you back, Dick, you know, and it was just uh, not something that I wanted to do. I told them that I was very flattered, but I really wanted to make movies, and I wasn't really interested in trying to. Propagandist for particularly for that gentleman. <laughs> so uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, but it was it was very flattering to be invited, obviously.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, two more things. Uh, you released a new novel, *The Man of Legends*. Can you just talk about a little bit about the, what the story is about.
1: Yeah, it it comes out uh, in um, on July first. Uh, it's being released uh, by a, a new division of Amazon called Forty Seven North um and um uh, we were when i wrote the novel uh, last year we were approached by uh, harpers and random house and little brown and several of the major publishers were really interested in doing it but the uh, the folks in this new division of amazon just came on so strong <laughs> with enthusiasm for for what it was all about, and how it worked, and, and what I had done with it, that they just wouldn't let me go anywhere else. <laughs> and so, and also, speaking of you know 10,000 pound gorillas, uh, certainly Amazon has, has become that in the publishing world of late. Uh, so we decided to go with them, and um, uh, yeah, the, med- the Man of Legends is, uh, I would say it's a supernatural mystery that blends sort of epic adventure, suspense, and a, a really touching love story, and it's all rooted in a great untold legend that nobody's ever really explored until now. Uh, and the story takes place over over New Year's weekend in New York City uh, in 2001. It's New Year's weekend, 2001. But there are flashes back over the last 2,000 years to the ancient Holy Land, and then back further than that really into the sort of primal imagery of, of Paradise Lost. Uh, because the, the hero of the piece is an engaging flesh-and-blood guy, uh, just like you or, or me, Noel. And he made, he's a guy who made a mistake, uh, a mistake that you or I could easily have made. And it brought down really grave consequences upon him. Uh, he has been forced to go on living and to constantly roam the world for the last 20 centuries. Uh, on a quest to, to try to discover what mission he has to accomplish to redeem himself. And that's sort of the theme that traces it's, itself through the whole story about um, uh, try to, uh, trying to understand one's reason for being. And because he has lived so long and traveled so uh, extensively, uh, he has had a profound in- impact on a lot of people, and a lot of them very famous historical people, scientists and others, who have shaped our world in a lot of stunning ways. So he's had a huge, huge impact on all of uh, of human history for the last 2,000 years. And he's also been pursued for about the last 1,600 years by uh, Vatican authorities who are uh, eager to contain him because of the damage he could conceivably cause to their empire and organized religion in general because of what he knows. And um, his latest nemesis is a French priest, sort of like Inspector Javert in Les Miserables, who is determined to, to bring him in and who is, is nipping at his heels in New York City on this, on this New Year's weekend. Uh, and there are also two women who are particularly eager to, 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 to find him. One is a young tabloid journalist, uh, like working for the National Enquirer-type uh, tabloid, who has seen, photog- seen him in photographs uh, in the background in photographs uh, that were taken in 1948 and 1912 and 1850 and he still looks the same in every photograph and then she sees his face on a newscast in New York City where he uh, this heroic guy that nobody knows who he is uh, has just uh, rescued a little five-year-old Hispanic girl from a burning tenement house he saved the little girl dropped her out to the police to the firemen but uh, the whole fiery walls of the place collapsed in on him and he's now got ninety degree, you know, third degree burns on 90% of his body and all broken and bad. he's not expected he's mortally wounded he's, he's, in, he's in a coma and he's clearly going to die but she sees his face on the news and goes holy cow that's the guy uh, and at the same time seeing the same broadcast there's a sort of an 85 year old Catherine Hepburn type woman a feisty old New England lady you know just like Kate who was his lover 60 years ago when he saved her from uh, trying to commit suicide in the Seine River in in Paris and they became lovers and and she was the love of his life and he of hers and she is so eager to see him before she's gone because she just misses him so much. Um, So they are all pursuing him and there's also a darker force that has been shadowing him over his whole 2,000-year existence. Uh, he's a very sleek young man. not Leonardo DiCaprio is the image I had in my head while I was writing it, uh, who seems to be an emissary from darker forces who was, who really wants to help and, and uh, you know so the and the whole novel sort of uh, funnels through to a final conclusion where there is a confrontation between these two and uh, it's kind of a jaw jaw-dro- jaw-dropping uh, conclusion and and the story is told by uh, uh, sort of in the first person by a dozen or more people whom he encounters uh, that weekend in New York City um, and so there's a number of different voices we we also did an audiobook recording which is coming out at the same time that the the novel is uh and it was great because i got in. i got uh, you know a dozen uh, or so of my favorite actors into the the recording studio with me and it's a, it's a bit like a radio play with all these different voices telling the story uh and from their own perspective and uh, so it's it's quite a,
0: a fun book and, uh, and uh, amazon is very excited about it i'll definitely have to check out the, the radio uh, version of the the audio version oh, yeah, of that yet? Yeah, yeah, the
1: audio book is fun. It'll also be available on Audible. Uh, the uh, you know where you can download it to cell phones and right. pads and that sort of thing too. But uh, and Kendall, so it'll be a print, Kindle,
0: audio book, and Audible uh, download. It'll be hard to miss it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah I was, you know it was it was great fun to write
1: because there's there's a lot of there's also a lot of humor in it about the little ways that that, that he has the big ways he's affected our life and the small ways I'll just give you one example at one point he uh, helps James Watt a uh, Scotsman in the 1700s uh helps him to Design the the steam engine that really works. You know, he helps James Watt design the steam engine, which kickstarts, of course, the whole industrial revolution. Right? Uh, and but at the same time, he, he manages to uh, use the steam relief valve on the steam engine to create the first cappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's uh, there's a lot of humor as well as uh, and, and you know and it it's it's funny too when you have a ripple effect like that on the world as he has tried to do always good for uh, to try to um, his, his whole uh part of what he's trying to do is is replace superstition and and uh, ignorance with knowledge and truth, you know. And uh, but sometimes you do the right thing and it ends up not having the effect that you wanted. I mean, you save a little boy in the Bavarian Alps in the 1800s from a blizzard, who, you know, you keep him alive, you save his life. That's a good thing. Until the little boy grows up to be the grandfather of Adolf Hitler. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like oops. <laughs> and uh, Uh, so there's lots of touches and and humor uh, uh, and and, and some profound stuff that happens too so I I hope you enjoy it
0: oh definitely definitely will so between Bionic Woman the Hulk I didn't even mention Alien Nation how great that show was V what do you like to watch in your free
1: time um i Read mostly. I watch movies and I read. I don't watch a lot of television. Uh, and incidentally, speaking of Alien Nation, um, uh, Eric Pierpoint, who played my lead uh, right, alien right. in Alien yeah. Nation, is one of the voices. He does one. He does the voice of my lead uh, st- uh, character in in uh, the book. And Terry Trees, who was the sexy, beautiful alien across the hall from uh, that my human cop falls in love with, Terry is has one of the voices in it. And there are several others that were involved in Alien Nation that are uh, that came into the studio to help me out and do the book. And, uh, so, so that's fun. Alien Nation was uh, probably the most fun any of us have ever had doing a television show. Uh, we we talked we've all talked about that a lot over the years uh, because it was it was a great show from the standpoint of the fact that it was really the show that got me uh, allowed me to do one of the things that was always the most important to me, Noel, which was to chip away at intolerance and prejudice and discrimination and. Right. showing on the air from a black doctor in Detroit who said you know I saw this Alien Nation show was coming on he said it really made me mad he said why are they doing another show about aliens why don't they do a show about the black experience and he said then I saw your show and realized it was about the black experience <laughs> you know and we got uh, uh, we got wonderful awards from the Hispanic American community, the Asian American community, the LGBT community, the Jewish American community. Everybody thought it was about them as a minority. And, and I just ate it up. So we, we knew we were doing a show that had some real underlying meat and substance to it. But at the same time, we had a group of people that all loved each other, and we just had so much fun doing it. And it was, uh, you know, it was really, really extraordinarily wonderful. And speaking of the LGBT thing, uh, I also get a lot of letters from people who have told me that the Six Million Dollar Man and particularly the Bionic Woman uh, were two characters, and particularly Lindsay's character, uh, that LGBT community people identified with. And it was because... Jamie was different on the inside than she was on the outside. Right. And uh, and I hadn't thought about it when I was doing the show, but, um, uh, but of course, it's absolutely true. You know, you see one thing on the surface and that's what you accept as The reality, and you don't know until you scratch the surface and get underneath and realize, you know, that there's something else entirely underneath. Uh, So that was a great, um, uh, wonderful thing to hear from uh, uh, from uh, my friends in the LGBT community that uh, that it had that impact on them. And uh, um, and I also I've always tried to write strong women. Um, My mother was a a very strong sort of um, career woman. Uh, who I saw through my whole life and growing up in the fifties as a woman who was just equal to men. You know, I didn't know she wasn't getting paid as much, uh, but but uh, in terms of the social context, in terms of intelligence, in terms of holding her own in uh, in male company and uh, and in companies of men, um, she was she was you know that was who I saw as as a woman. And uh, so I think I was a feminist before there was a word for it, uh, I realized later on, because it just was natural for me to write and have a great comfort and, and delight in writing characters who were very strong. I mean, if you look at both of the leads of V, for example, uh, both the the, uh, the heroine, uh, Faye Grant's character, Julie, named for my daughter Julie, um, is is a, is a young woman who doesn't realize how strong she is until she... Suddenly becomes the natural leader of the underground resistance, Uh, and she doesn't get it, you know, at first. uh, And everybody else says, "You don't have to worry about that. Just do it. Just do your job, (laughs) you know, because you're the you're the natural leader." And likewise, the the prime nemesis in V is uh, the role that Jane Badler played of Diana. Uh, the goddess of the hunt—that's where that came from—and um, uh, and and she is equally strong from from the dark side. Uh, she's the Darth Vader of the piece, and uh, so I've always delighted in writing women that were uh, that were really really strong and and could hold their own, and I think that's part of the reason. Uh, this is an unusual thing, uh, Noel. A lot of people don't realize. Uh, you know, the studios and the networks always look at what is the demographic breakdown of your show? Who does it attract in to watch your show? And my demographic has always been the one that all, that all the studios and networks want. Because all of my shows from, the, from the, the, the Bionic shows, through the Hulk, through V, through Alien Nation, the largest audience has always been adult females. Mm and then adult males and then teens and then kids. And that's the perfect arc that you want to have. Um, And sci-fi or things that are speculative fiction like that generally don't, you know, are not attractive to female audiences. And yet, mine always have been. And I think, Noel, it's because, uh, not because I ever sought out that audience particularly, but because I always was more interested in character and in the emotional structure of stories uh, and in the relationships between people and the humanity than I was in blowing things up and doing car chases and, you know, and having alien reptilian faces underneath human faces. It was, it was really, really, really all about the, uh, you know, the, the more thematic stuff
0: and the more character-driven uh, and emotionally-driven stuff. And you've certainly nailed it. Kenneth, thank you for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure, Noel. Thanks so much for your interest.
0: A special thank you to Kenneth Johnson for joining me today. I really hope his V movie gets made, because that would be awesome. Be sure to check me out again on our next episode, where we feature pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at the first Noel19 and like the page Reliving My Youth on Facebook.